Uh, and it's, it's happened every time we've gotten to the end of a book study. Um, when we get to this last week, I finally feel like we're ready to begin. Uh, or at least I'm ready to begin. Like I now know what the book talks about in, in a sufficient layer and level of detail that uh, I, I kind of feel like we should just go back and, and everything would be that much better. Um, it's actually a reminder, at least for me, to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, how uh, the, nothing really ever has an end. And if you look for those ends to satisfy you in lasting fashion, you're just going to continually be disappointed because every time you complete one project, what does the boss do? He gives you another project to go do. And if you do the one project really, really well, you probably get a bigger project down the line. And there's just more work to be done every time you do laundry. You could crush the load of laundries this week. What's going to happen next week? You just got more laundry to do. And Solomon actually uses these things as illustrations in our world to say, don't look to any of those things to find fulfillment. Because they are going to leave you dissatisfied every time. You've got to have something that your fulfillment is found in that is not under the sun. It's beyond the sun. But I'm not preaching through Ecclesiastes 1 this morning. We're getting into Philippians 4 this morning. And we are looking at the second part of Paul's thankfulness towards this church for their generosity. And last week we looked at verses 10 to 13. And we saw Paul writing about and explaining his attitude towards his circumstances and God's provision. We looked at how Paul said and listened to Paul write about how in any and every circumstance, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In whatever situation, I have learned to be content. And we thought about what that idea of contentment means and on what basis is Paul able to say I can be impoverished and be content and I can have more than I could possibly ever use and be content. I know how to be brought low and be content. I know how to abound and be content. What brings somebody to that place? And we briefly traced throughout this only letter, just Philippians, how Paul writes about Contentment is rooted in the sovereignty of God. That whether he is being brought low, experiencing trouble, affliction, as really much of the letter expresses that he currently is, or whether he's abounding, he sees that God is in control. That this hasn't taken God by surprise, and that in fact, God is doing something through these circumstances, how favorable or unfavorable they may be, God is doing something that might not otherwise be accomplished. And so there was an aim then. And Paul sees his contentment as aimed at becoming more like Christ. That he may experience moments of trouble and suffering, but God's trying to make him more like Jesus through that. He may experience moments of abundance, and God there is still trying to make him more like Jesus through that. And I'm not sure... Just for us, we often think about abundance in that way. And I know I found myself really, really specifically having to consider those things last week in preparation for last Sunday. Do I see abundance as just as much God trying to conform me to the image of Christ as I do 
affliction. Well, this morning we're going to turn our focus on and attention on God's use of the Philippians to provide for Paul's needs. And he lays a vision out for this church in the beginning of chapter 1. He tells them, this is my prayer for you. He wants them to continue to grow in all discernment, in knowledge, be able to approve what is excellent. And he wants them to become more like Jesus. And through the tail end of chapter 1, he says, look, collectively, this looks like you standing side by side together, striving with one another, remaining fearless in the face of opposition. And this morning, he is going to tackle specifically what being more like Jesus looks like when it relates to our money. And as he thanks them for their gift, he specifically writes about how their money, their generosity, is not disconnected from them becoming more like Christ. Paul commends this church for their generosity, and along the way, we're going to see that he makes some stunning statements and some really profound promises. Now, I've been very acutely reminded this week that while this isn't the first time that we've ever addressed giving together, I stand before you in the midst of a culture that loves money almost as much as itself and in the midst of an American church culture where it may not be widespread, but it's high profile. There are churches or ministries, men, women, that can be very easily pointed to as those who have zero credibility to talk about this. I was doing a little research this past week in regards to that and stumbled on how two years ago, a mega church down in Atlanta, their pastor launched a capital campaign for them. It's a $65 million capital campaign. What was the goal? It was to buy a jet. To buy what is known as the Holy Grail of Lear jets. Because somehow that was going to facilitate and push things forward. And it's just, it's just the reality. I stand in front of you with all of that baggage. Because we can clearly point to those examples and go, that's wrong. Yes and amen. But we can also just notice, remark that in our culture, we love our money almost as much as we love ourselves. And God's going to have some things to say to us this morning. And so it's, it's in that context that I'm fully aware of it. And so my, my goal and my aim is to just be very, very biblical show you right out of the scriptures what God has said and explain that and let him and the Holy Spirit through his word do the work that needs to be done. So to that end, let's pray and we're going to hop into these verses together. God in heaven, we, we pray and ask that you would come and meet with us, that you would, uh, you would help us to see and understand your word. God, as I said earlier, we're a church that believes that you have spoken and it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. So God, we want to do that now. We want to draw near. We want to understand what it is that you have said. And God, we pray that you'd meet with us in a special way. That you'd come, that you'd come change us. 
God, I think there will be some here this morning that need to be convicted. Would you do that? And there are some here this morning that need to be encouraged. Would you do that as well? We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we look at these verses, I want to read verses 14 to 20 with you, and then we're going to spend just a little bit of time in 14 to 16. Paul's given some biographical information. We'll spend the majority of our time in 17 to 19. But let's go to the beginning of 14 there and read what Paul has to say. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, it's in verses 14 to 16 that Paul gives some background information, some, some of the backstory about this church entering into partnership with him. And he writes, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now, the word share there is the word, same word that Paul has used throughout this entire letter. It's from the same family of words that has been translated other places, fellowship. It's been translated other places in this book, partnership. When he, in chapter 1, talks about them being partners of the gospel or partakers with him in grace. It's this same family of words. And we, we looked at this word a long time ago and we thought about that word fellowship. So this word is, it was kind of you to have fellowship with me in my trouble. And we, we thought through how, how fellowship is not just the gathering together at mealtime, telling a few jokes, playing some games, and then leaving to go home having felt refreshed. Fellowship can be a part of that, and that can be a part of fellowship, but that's not all. Fellowship is not just what happens in a room in a church that may happen to be called the fellowship hall. Fellowship is something far more profound and deep than that. Fellowship is a distinctly Christian idea as it's written about in the New Testament. And so we have to ask ourselves, how, what does our fellowship look like that looks different from the world? Because the world can gather they can have a meal, they can play games, they can share some jokes, tell some stories, leave having felt encouraged and refreshed by spending time with friends. That's not distinctively Christian. But this idea of fellowship is the idea of linking arms together, standing side by side together, being willing to say to one another, what I have is actually yours because we're family now. We're brothers and sisters, and so when and where you have need, you get to count on me to step into that need and provide for that need, because we're family. That's a Christian idea of fellowship, and that's what Paul's saying here. It was kind of you to have fellowship in my trouble. He is writing to them, telling them, you have stepped into my trouble, 
It's as if he's writing to them, thanking them for troubling themselves along with him. It's as if Paul is saying, as I experience hardship in the midst of being imprisoned, thank you for experiencing hardship alongside of me through your sacrificial gifts. He continues in verse 15 to give some explanation to that. He takes them back to what happened at the beginning. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, this would have been when Acts 16 and Luke records for us what took place there. Paul comes in to the region of Macedonia, decides to go to the colony of Philippi. On Saturday, goes to find people gathered for prayer and he finds some ladies down by the river. And one of them's name was Lydia a seller of fine purple goods, and he leads them to the Lord, and they then share the gospel with their families and households, and they all get baptized. And then Paul gets thrown in jail, and he leads the jailer to the Lord, and the jailer leads his family to the Lord, and they all get baptized. And then Paul really unceremoniously has to leave Philippi because they just want him gone. The city officials want nothing more to do with him. And he says, look, you yourselves only entered into partnership with me. That word partnership, again, is the word fellowship. It's the same word share we see in verse 14. In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And I think what Paul is doing here is explaining to them and giving perhaps us, who now read this letter 2,000 years later, a little bit of an inside glimpse and a little bit of a greater explanation of what he wrote about in verse 10. Go back to verse 10. He writes there, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Here in verse 15, he talks about them entering into partnership with him. Here's what I think was going on. And he'll give a little bit more of this explanation in verse 16. As he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent to me once and again. As Paul left Philippi. And as he went to other cities in Macedonia, and as he preached the gospel there, this church was so moved by the gospel that they began immediately to start providing financially for Paul. And they did so even as he left. Now, it might have been Lydia who organized all of this. She seems to be a bit of a big deal businesswoman in Acts 16. They start providing for his needs as he goes. And then something happens, and we don't know what the something is, but something happens where they still had concern for him, but they lacked opportunity to give to him. And so in verse 10, he talks about their concern being revived. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Something took place. That stopped them from being able to physically get gifts to Paul to continue supporting him. But now they've sent these gifts with Epaphroditus. We have no idea what happened in the middle there. But they have now sent gifts to Epaphroditus. But he writes about what happened in those beginning days. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. 
I learned this past week that once and again is a Greek expression that means again and again without specifying a specific number of times. More than likely, it's less than 10, but it's two or more. And what Paul is doing in commending this church and thanking them for their gifts, he's reminding them of what happened in those early days. And by extension, us, we get to see a church being celebrated for again and again and again, sacrificially giving to support the work of the gospel. Paul commends this church for doing so. He commends them now and thanks them now for stepping into his trouble that he has in Rome. It was kind of you to share in my trouble, to step in. But lest Paul can be confused as just being one of those guys that has a $65 million capital campaign so he can buy an airplane... He writes specifically in verse 17, I think, to caution us from making that conclusion. And he says this, not that I seek the gift. That's not my point, church. I'm not writing to you, thanking you, trying to guilt you into giving again and again, again. That's not my point. I'm not seeking the gift. But here's what I do seek. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. We're not going to have time to look at the specific words that Paul uses, but they are economic words. They're business words. They're accounting words. They're, there's an economic idea and expression in these next several verses as Paul writes to them and in verse 17, in what he tells them he is seeking, there's the idea that interest is being gained somewhere. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is saying that the financial gift the Philippians sent was fruit that ultimately had been deposited in heavenly bank accounts. And Paul indicates that this fruit this deposit is going to bear interest. And so their loss here and now on an accounting spreadsheet ledger actually serves as a gain where it really matters. One scholar said this, the combination of fruit and increase, those two words written in a financial context refers to compounding interest. It's kind of a fascinating idea. It's actually a very similar idea to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul is saying that their gift here and now, which let's call it as it is, was a loss. It was a debit on a ledger. 
is actually a credit where it matters most. Echoing the words of Jesus, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. There's a verse that Carrie and I kind of live and operate by out of Proverbs. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him his deed. I'll take those returns every day. There's been times that people have stopped us on the sides of the roads, that people have, have called randomly out of the blue, can you put gas in our tank, can you do this, can you do that, can and, and everything within me in the initial moments just wants to say no. You called four times last month. And then I remember Proverbs 17, 19, 17. Now there's no promise in this verse that I'm going to see that return here. So I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods that say you go put $40 in somebody's gas tank and by the time you get home, you find $400 back in your account. It's not what I'm trying to sell you. I'm, I'm trying to tell you that in the context of what matters most, what you may lose here and now in giving to the poor you're actually lending to the Lord, and he's going to repay you. It's the same idea that Paul talks about here in Philippians 4, 17. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In the context of what they've done and what they've given and how they've done so over and over and over again, I mean, there, there should be no question as to whether or not they were able to see somewhere and feel somewhere in their budgets, if they had budgets, that there was a loss experienced. Personally, I think if you're giving generously, if you're giving correctly, you're going to feel it. You're going to see it on paper. You're going to feel it. I think if you're doing that correctly without question, you could easily identify other areas in your budget that could benefit from those dollars. You know that we could use this money elsewhere. Let me say it another way. If your giving can be shrugged off. It's not that big of a deal. Just, I won't do Starbucks this week. If you can shrug off your giving, I don't think you're doing it correctly. So I think time and time again, the scriptures present a commended, generous, sacrificial giver as somebody who has experienced a loss here and now. The poor widow commended by Jesus in the temple. She's commended in front of all of the other rich people that are throwing in gobs and gobs of money. She throws in two small copper coins worth a penny. And Jesus says she's given more because she gave out of her poverty. The issue here is not the dollar amount. A couple verses later, a couple chapters later, in the same gospel account, Mark records for us that 
Lazarus' sister, is commended for taking an entire year's worth of salary in the form of an expensive perfume, breaks it, anoints Jesus' feet with it. Those two accounts recorded just chapters apart serve us in tremendous ways to remind us that the amount does not matter. But I think both of those ladies felt the gift. And there was a loss experienced. Paul commends the Philippians for their gift. And I think if we're giving generously, if we're giving correctly, we're going to see on paper and we're going to feel in real life that there, there's a sacrifice there. Whatever that looks like for you. But the opposite of that is if you feel like you can shrug it off, like it's just not that big of a deal. You really need to evaluate whether you're giving generously. Ralph last Sunday told me a story as he walked out of church. Of uh, It was a sermon illustration that he had heard. And, and uh, the pastor that was speaking at the time was sharing about uh, a man in his congregation who had came up to him and said, uh, I'm so moved and compelled by, by what you've said or what God's word said that I'm going to continue to increase my giving. And, and somehow this man let his giving be known. And, and that was part of the story. But this man then became more and more successful in business. And his income began to increase more and more and this pastor didn't see increases commensurate to the man's business increases. And asked him the question at some point, you told us very publicly that this was going to increase. What happened? And Ralph shared that the man commented, well, I just never knew the number would be that big. So when the man was making... I mean, let's say $100 a month and was content to give 10 10 didn't feel like that big of a deal, but he was making 1000 a month, 100 felt like a bigger deal. If we're giving correctly, we shouldn't be able to shrug it off. It, it should feel like, like some sacrifice. And not even like sacrifice. It should feel sacrificial. We should see it. We should feel it. There should be this... Perhaps this constant tension and pull in our souls, and I, at least there isn't with mine. And I make the choice to give by faith, not even by logic. Logically, it's in obedience to the scriptures, but it's by faith and it's a spiritual decision. Paul's writing to them and saying, This gift that you give sacrificially now, this loss you experience now is actually a a stepping into the loss I'm experiencing and it's going to yield rewards eternally. In verse 18, he begins to make some stunning statements. He says, I've received full payment and more. That word received, the idea there is I've I've been paid in full, church. I have all that I need. I'm not seeking the gift. I'm seeking what 
counts and the increase to your credit. I'm not even writing to you to thank you, to tell you to give more because I still have need. I have enough. I have received everything that I could possibly use. He compounds and piles on verbs to explain this. I've received full payment and more. I've got more than enough. I am well supplied because of what you have sent through Epaphroditus. And then he uses these phrases here at the end of verse 18. This gift you sent was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to God. Those three phrases, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, one that's pleasing to God, describes actions that honor and glorify the Lord. And Paul's not writing this in the context of saying that God loves you more because you gave these gifts, that God accepts you more because you gave these gifts. I mean, he's just, he, he's um, condemned that perspective of God's love at the beginning of chapter 3. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh who want to tell you that God's love for you is dependent on what you do. It's not the idea he's sharing with you and us. What he's saying is God's pleased. I don't love my daughters more when they clean their room. But I do walk by and I smile. I think that's the idea here. God's love for you doesn't grow when you give more. But he smiles. It's a sacrificial offering. It's fragrant, it's acceptable, it's pleasing. And in verse 19, he says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That word supply in verse 19 is the same word that Paul wrote when he used the word supplied in verse 18. And so in verse 18, he said, I am well supplied. Philippian church, I don't need more because I'm well supplied. But guess what? God's going to well supply you. My God will supply every need of yours. I think Paul's saying in the way that you have completely supplied for my needs, God will completely supply for yours. Whether that's a crop, that's a bumper crop that year for them. Whether it was another person or another church or or somebody else that's stepping in now and sharing in their trouble to give to them. We don't know. But the promise is that God will supply. He's not telling the Philippians, just give and 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 just let it go. Now he's telling them, You give and give and give, and you watch God supply and supply and supply. And he's going to supply according to his riches. Very similar ideas are communicated in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul writes, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, so there may be fairness. 
this takes us right back to this idea of fellowship. That fellowship is the linking of arms and the standing shoulder to shoulder to say, what's mine is yours because we're family. Just one chapter later, Paul writes this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That word sufficiency there in the middle of our screen is the exact same word Paul used in Philippians 4 verse 11, content. Last week we looked at how Paul said, in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance I am content. I can do all things through him who gives me strength because I am content. And here he says, God is able to make his grace abound so that you have contentment in all things at all times so that you can abound in good work. See, there's this idea that we, we're, we're right back to where we were last week, where contentment's rooted in the sovereignty of God, and it's aimed at making us more like Jesus. It's the exact same idea here. God's grace will abound. His sovereignty is going to abound so that you have contentment in everything and can abound in every good work. Part of that work is sacrificial, generous giving. And so when this series in Philippians was originally put together, uh, it was maybe over a year ago, uh, the plan was for us to tackle the entire book between September and November. It's laughable, I know. And as I was driving out to conference... I heard on a podcast that Dave Ramsey was offering half-off discounts for his leaders' materials. At that point, Financial Peace University was a, you know, it would be really nice someday to do this kind of a thought. I heard on the podcast, and we, we got to my folks' house that night, and one of the first things we did after we got everybody settled in and in bed was I, just, I logged on and I bought it. It was 50% off. Grace Kids 2020 wasn't even on the radar, wasn't even a thought I had had at that point. And then I get to national conference, and I feel like the Holy Spirit's kind of working and churning in me, making me wonder whether we should not cram the book of Philippians into 12 Sundays. And then I sit into some workshops on solo pastor churches and some of the uniquenesses and challenges and benefits and what that looks like. And, and out of that cohort with other like-minded, like-situationed men, the seed for Grace Kids 2020 gets planted. I come home and I got this kind of crazy idea. And as I told you before, like I do with most of my crazy ideas, I call John Fitz. I go, John, I got a crazy idea. We got to talk. So he met. We met. I said, all right. 
He didn't laugh at me. He didn't brush me off. It's all right, we got to talk to Joe. He's right now responsible for this age group. His buy-in to this, his, his vision alongside of me in this is going to be so important in this. We met for three hours at Mission Barbecue and chatted. I took it to the elder board a couple weeks later. Those guys spent months thinking about the implications of this decision and that decision. What do you hear and, and whether we should. And, and, and we arrived at December 31st with really cool booklets printed by Duane's company, cut out by Duane himself. I wish I could tell you that like all of those things timed together were the ideas and, and brilliance of, of men. And God has us right now here in like this seven-day window, which feels like it's just so critical. Where we're finishing up Philippians. We're being encouraged in financial generosity. We're being reminded the significance of that. There's a finance class starting two days from now. There's a vote next Sunday to figure out if we're taking step one or not, if we can take this $10,000 step or not. If you're giving generously, if you feel it, you know it's there, you need to hear me say this morning loud and clear, God is pleased with you. Those gifts, those sacrifices are acceptable. They're fragrant as an offering. Thank you. And again, whether that's the two small copper coins or a year's wage, those gifts are acceptable. You're making deposits into a bank account with compounding interest that is not dependent on the Dow. That will yield heavenly gains. If you're not giving generously, there's an invitation this morning for you to do so. To join in sacrificial partnership for the gospel. I think God's word's clear. There is fruit, there is treasure in heaven that is of greater value than what you could purchase or invest in here. And there's this promise that as you give, and I think as you feel it, and as you go, I could use that money elsewhere, I, as you feel that pull and that tension, there's this promise that God's going to supply your needs. But there's also just the reality here. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to convince any of you logically to do this. I'm never going to be able to sit down with an accounting spreadsheet and say, all right, here's the two options before you. Work with 90% of your income or work with 100% of your income. Logic says every time, well, give me the 100%. It's a spiritual decision. 
one made by placing our faith and trust in the promises of God. And I think if you do it, if you accept the invitation, what you're going to see is God will time and time again provide for your every needs as he's promised he will do. And he's going to transform your heart. And if we think back to what Paul said at the beginning, or the tail end of chapter 3, we keep your eyes or imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to what we have in Jesus. The idea there is if you want to be godly, find godly people and do what they do. I can't guarantee this next statement to you, but I, would, I will all but guarantee it. You find any of the older godly people in our church and you ask them, do you sacrificially give? I think you will find a yes every time. Because these things are connected to Christ-likeness. And it's a spiritual decision. It's one based on faith. And time and time again throughout the Gospels, and as it gets written about in these letters to local churches, there is the attachment to Christ-likeness and sacrificial giving. So some of you just need to be applauded this morning. Some of you, maybe the Holy Spirit needs to prod this morning. And He can figure that out. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would, that you would come and do that work you know each one of our hearts. You know each one of our checkbooks. You know whether or not we need to walk out of here this morning and we need, we need to feel, feel that smile. That, that, that dad's pleased. But you also know if we need to walk out of here this morning and we need to have some of our priorities questioned. And so I pray that you would do that in a way that each of us needs, in the way that really only you can do. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.